Unless you've been living under a rock, you'll have heard about the power of artificial intelligence by now. Generative models like ChatGPT and DALI, they dominate the headlines for good. We talk about a Copernican revolution. It could be on that scale. And of course, for bad. And there will be a moral panic about AI. This week, I'm speaking to Nell Watson and David Weinberg, two technologists who have been thinking about these issues for decades. So welcome to the second season of Playing With Reality. With me, Menno van Dorn, a podcast from Society, the home for technology talent. So here we are with a new season and we have a surprise in store as well. I'm going to be joined by a very special guest to discuss it all and reflect on the interviews. Tiana or Tia Nikolic. Hi, Tia. Hey, Mano. Thank you for having me again. Well, you know, you've been a guest uh, in the last season, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you're now going to be my sidekick or whatever, the expert on AI. So maybe you can do a little introduction of yourself. Of course, of course. So my name is Tiana Nikolic, as you said. I'm an AI specialist in the Sojiti Netherlands Center of Excellence Team for Data Science. I specialize in testing of AI and using AI to accelerate software testing. So basically anything regarding validation of AI, I'm very, very passionate about. And that, I think, would be a, yeah, a light team of a lot of our episodes. So that's a bit about me. In this first episode of our new season, we'll be delving into the fascinating history of artificial intelligence. From its early conceptual origins to the groundbreaking research and development that has brought us to where we are today, AI has a rich and complex history that has been shaped by some of the greatest minds of our time. We are going to explore the key moments, the breakthroughs, and the controversies that have defined the evolution of AI and discover how this revolutionary technology has transformed the way we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Now, Tia, did you notice anything interesting about my opening introduction just then? Oh, Mano, everything was interesting about the introduction. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> But what do you mean exactly? I feel there's a surprise in store for me here. I'm not sure whether it's a surprise, but uh, <laughs> it was actually written not by my producer or by me myself, but it was written by ChatGPT. Could you notice that this was ChatGPT? Actually, no. It no. was quite, uh, yeah, it was flowing very nicely. And it might be because of the speaker. Uh, or yeah. Also, it might be because of the model. It sounds really like a human wrote it. Yeah. So we can get rid of the producer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. But... <laughs> sorry. So Tia, everyone is talking about chat GPT, but let's take a step back and just, can you tell me what's actually AI? So artificial intelligence or, or AI is very simply put, just intelligence exhibited by machines or programs, for example. And Basically, what AI studies as a computer uh, field is intelligent agents. So some models or different programs that can 
take a look at an environment and derive a specific conclusion or, for example, uh, behave in a certain way that would be successful. Mm -hmm. That's basically what the uh, idea around artificial intelligence is. Now, let's start with ChatGPT. Why is it so significant, this change in AI systems? Yeah, so the significant impact of ChatGPT, for me personally, I think it's also the way, uh, the accessibility of it. So it's so easy to use. Mm -hmm. Everyone can do it. You really do feel like you are speaking to a human. And uh, I think that's why it's so significant, because it goes towards that general AI. And it can do different tasks and it can converse in new and specific ways. So it's easy and it's also the tone of force, don't you think? Absolutely. It's so natural. It's so human. It's so normal, I would say. Yeah. So does it signal a new era for AI? What do you think? Is it Absolutely. Is it, yeah. And does it signal a new era for humanity? Yes, it does, because now we're going to have a lot of conversations and I definitely think they should be held around How do we use this in an ethical way? How Mm. do we use this to help people and not hinder society? Great. So now let's go into our first interview. First up, I wanted to discover more about where we stand with AI today. So I got in touch with an old friend of mine, Nell Watson. So Nell is a futurist and a technology speaker who is chair of the IEEE's Transparency Experts Focus Group where she works to engineer mechanisms into AI in order to help safeguard algorithmic trust. Let's hear from Nell. First of all, what a pleasure being able to talk to you and what a timing, I would say. I mean, the whole world is going berserk about everything that's happening in AI and I have the opportunity to talk with you about that same thing. So... uh, Great to reconnect to you. Thank you. And being a trailblazer in AI and ethics, what are the big questions that we should ask now that this is all out in the open? Well, it's clear that we're in a new era because the last 10 years or so has been the era of deep learning, which is about doing a small, tightly focused task very, very well right? Mm -hmm. So making a prediction about something based on looking at a a large amount of data, for example. But that wasn't generalizable. You couldn't use that classifier for motorbikes to work on trucks instead. Now we're in that kind of era where we've moved from niche, narrow applications towards systems which can think in an abstract manner to understand many different forms of data sort of multi-modality, to understand text, audio, video, images, et cetera, and not just text, but poetry and financial reports and sports results and everything together to create a much more holistic understanding of the world. Yeah. And moreover, these models enable us to distill knowledge. Basically, the more data that we put in, the more of a, a distilled condensed version of that can be created within the model. And we can simply ask it questions or give it prompts, for example, suggestions. And using those, kind of like how a magician might use spells, we can elicit responses from it. Because these kinds of models are not just one intelligence. They are tens of thousands of different little intelligences 
but they're all fused together. They are legion. They create a collective consciousness. And in fact, it's not too dissimilar from how our own brains work, at least on a sort of smaller level. What are the consequences? So there's this new, different, little kinds of intelligence working together. But what will it mean for culture? What will it mean for knowledge generation? What will it mean for my life and your life, for the people that are listening? It's going to be powerfully disruptive in many ways. Firstly, nobody expected the world of the creative sector to be impacted by AI. There's such a thing as Moravec's paradox, which says that things which human beings find easy, like walking across a room and opening up a can of soda pop, machines like robots, for example, embodied intelligences, find very difficult. Conversely, doing very complex mathematics is something that machines can do trivially. And so we thought that AI would help us make sense of numbers or make sense of complex phenomena, which it certainly does. But we didn't expect the application of that to have such an impact in, for example, creating images. Now we're moving into creating videos, creating 3D objects and animations and scenes, basically being able to generate all kinds of content that the creative sector normally has been making for us. So that's going to have a, an impact on people's economic choices, people's economic opportunities. But beyond creativity in terms of media, we have tremendous opportunity to improve the generation of new ideas. And so we're starting to see these examples where the kind of a, a dialectic between human intelligence and machine intelligence in the space between those two nodes, there's something magical is being created. And it's enabling us to move past our assumptions about how a problem should be solved and to generate very creative and innovative solutions based on that. And so I think that machines are going to be very instrumental in how we approach science and how we approach uh, various kinds of difficult or even seemingly intractable problems. And is, is that the, your point about ChatGPT? Now you have something you can just talk with. The interface between man and machine is just a, a chat. Is, is that the magic? Or, or So what do you make of ChatGPT? I think the interface definitely is part of the magic for sure. Again, to look at the analogy of that magical moment in the early to mid-1990s, the internet has been around since the 1960s or so in various forms, but you had to manually connect to one server at a time and download things, and it was very complicated. Then along came the World Wide Web, which created this wonderful interface where you could just surf between content and servers, etc., in a very effective and easy way. And that enabled so many new people to use these systems and to become more efficient. And that has become embedded within our daily lives, of course. You know, many of us can hardly imagine trying to do work without access to a computer or access to the web. And similarly, this new interface, this new layer that we can use is going to change how we approach work, how we approach leisure, and perhaps even how we think about ourselves in the world today and how we 
relate to society at large. So what Nell was saying about man and machine working together was really interesting. What I think is that they will outperform us before we know it, or they already are. Do you think standalone AI can be the future, or do you think humans and machines will always be working together? For me personally, standalone AI will never be more powerful than human-centered AI, as I call it. Hmm. This is because having people enabled by technology, having their day-to-day life enabled in a positive way by technology is always going to be more impactful and more adopted as well. AI is going to be more adopted if it helps humans, as opposed to it being standalone and trying to outperform humans in a specific way. I'm so happy you're so confident. <laughs> um, you know, I'm in the space of uh, predicting the future. And I know uh, you can't predict the future. So I'm with you. I, uh, I think we should do it together, but I'm not convinced about whether this is a preferred future or that this will be the real future. But let's see. So about the creative sector, do you believe AI and things like ChatGPT will inevitably disrupt lots of the creative sector, for instance? We see a lot of discourse with artificial intelligence or generative AI being used in the creative sector. And this is due to the models being trained on data of the internet, as I previously mentioned. So that means that even inadvertently or by mistake, these models can be uh, trained on data that's copyrighted, for example. And this is definitely something that's currently disrupting the artists, in visual art especially, because their style is a fundamental property. So copyright comes to the rescue, sort of helping the creative industry or the creative people against the machines. But also, I think the quality of the creations can be improved by using the tools, don't you think so? Absolutely. So this is what it's disrupting, uh, especially visual artists, as I said. But if we take a look at writers, writers Mm -hmm. are not that mad about this because they use this to help them in their creative blocks, for example. And this is a great uh, point, Mano, that you raised. Also for visual artists, this can be a tool to help create art. And if we just take a look at generated art, I think with like a naked human eye, we can already see like, oh yeah, this is AI generated. You can actually see the that, that the style is different. So yeah, a lot of it is kitsch, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually yeah. can be. Yeah, exactly. So who are you speaking to next, Menno? Well, next I spoke to uh, another renowned technologist, David Weinberger. He is an author who has spoken widely about AI and machine learning. And he is also trained as a philosopher. That makes it interesting. He is bringing a broad perspective on how technology, particularly the internet and machine learning, is changing our world and how we think about our relationship with machines. So I wanted David to turn the clock back a bit to find out some more about AI's history. So hello, David. Hello. Happy to have you. Happy to be here. Good to see you again. So all kinds of people have real questions about what's going on with AI. You just need to turn on the television and see teachers talking about kids using chat GPT, all these kind of things. What do you make of this enthusiasm that everybody now has about these capabilities? Do you think this is like as big as, you know, the introduction of the internet or what do you, what do you make of it all? I think it's very, very important. I think it's considerably epically important. 
in the sense that we talk about a Copernican revolution. Hmm. It could be on that scale. It, it's very hard to do a comparison to compare the impact of the internet and AI only because they're so different in what they are and how they affect us. Mm -hmm. The internet has been also, one might say, uh, an epical change. Internet changed just about every institution that it touched, which is just about every institution. Yeah. It has direct effect on power relationships and authority and every aspect of day-to-day -day life and how businesses work, how they treat their customers and the ability of the customers to connect and social dimensions. I mean, it's such a broad and also a really deep change when you're changing what it means to be a friend from what it has been for thousands of years to mm -hmm. most of my friends are people I've never met at this point. It's a change in everything. Mm. You compare that to machine learning, which is also starting to touch many, many, many aspects of our lives because it's such a powerful computing technology. But it also more directly challenges our ideas about who we are than our ideas about the institutions and social formations that we're in. So the whole enthusiasm today about what AI can do is quite fresh, I would say. So when do you think was the starting point? So what, can you mention a turning point or help us to give a maybe a historical perspective of how we got so far? Uh, yes, I mean, AI as a term has been around and loosely defined for a long time. And so the history of it is really sort of squishy. From my point of view, I would look to the mid-1990s. So in the mid-1990s, IBM did this uh, crazy thing, which was to take Hansard, which is the Canadian bilingual record of everything said in Parliament. So you have this side-by-side -side translation going back dozens of years, and it's a lot of stuff. And rather than trying to get a translation system to work by telling that system everything that it needs to know about the grammar and syntax and vocabulary of French and English, it instead simply, IBM simply gave a machine a copy of Hansard's and said, note the positions of words, French and English, French and English. And of course, it doesn't work that it's exact positioning, but you could see this is a sentence in French, this is a sentence, the same sentence in English. Now look at a million examples and try to figure out how to translate one into another when the, the words are being used in some other context, which seems crazy, but that actually worked better than anything that had been done. The next big step is pretty much the same insight, but applied to images. The thing you point to is a 2012 competition in which people, uh, computer scientists were given the challenge of seeing how many images of objects their system could identify. And people would, before this, would try the same sort of thing as before I, IBM you would do with language. The winning AlexNet, the winning one, which won by a substantial jump in accuracy, said, no, let's not tell it anything, except we're just going to give it um, all of the images in the, in the database. They're all labeled with the object that's in them. Yeah. And we will just say, go ahead, you figure out, you in a neural network, you figure out what are the salient differences in the position and color of the pixels that let you distinguish um, an elephant from a rhino and, and the other, you know, other stuff. And the way that it does it with pixels is very much the same as it does with language or anything else, which or, or medical stuff. It, it looks for patterns in those pixels, and it keeps iterating and iterating and iterating, and it finds patterns that may be so complex and in combination that we can't 
We can't figure out exactly why that worked, but it did work. And we got this sort of quantum leap forward. So you were saying that 2012, for that reason, the thing that you can do with images and recognition is a turning point or maybe the turning point. Yeah, I'll say a turning point because everything's more complex. <laughs> a turning point. Okay. So, T, I don't know how old you are, but 2012, do you remember? I do remember it. It's actually the first year of college for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it was your turning point, maybe. But do you think yes. it was a turning point in AI also? Definitely. Yes. 2012 uh, was a time where ImageNet competition was happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, one of our favorite professors that we all listen to on Coursera, Andrew NG, and a Google engineer, Jeff Dean, hatched this idea of building a large neural network uh, with a massive computer power using Google servers. And they fed massive amount of images to that model. And they actually used an unsupervised learning model, as I again mentioned in the beginning. And this model uh, was trained on images from YouTube. So just snapshots hmm. from videos. And it actually took a look at all of those images itself and created clusters. One of them was a human cluster, a human body, something like that, and another one for cats. And yeah. I say that this is the year where the cats cats became the queens of artificial intelligence because we use cat images all of the time to do demos for our clients to show like how computer vision works. So that's how I like to call it. Yeah. And he mentioned the turning point. He, he went back to uh, to IBM. So where where's IBM now? Ooh, IBM, actually, again, going back to Nelly and myself and what we uh, like to work on and what uh, really mm -hmm. is our passion, IBM is paving the way and leading the way of ethical AI. So what I like to do is constantly check their website and see if uh, they have any new packages, modules um, put out for the ethical AI. And they also actually talk about human-centered AI a lot. So they focus on different things. This is really where they are currently, in my opinion, doing a lot of great things. And I really respect it. Yeah. So they are our guardians, maybe, uh, <laughs> IBM. <laughs> yes. uh, have you seen any significant other moments like 2012 recently? Oh, yes, of course. There's a lot of these significant moments. One of them, of course, a couple of years back is actually GPT coming out. So that was like 2019, um, where we saw these huge large language models coming out. And also DALI, generative art happening in 2019. So that was not uh, so long ago, if we look at it. And you see how big of a boom these uh, models made in the past couple of years. It's uh, really impressive. Next, I went back to Nell to find out some more about the current chasm-crossing moments and how humans and machines are becoming ever more entwined. So where do we stand now in our understanding of the intelligence of artificial intelligence? Can we expect more of them to come? We are certainly going to see many, many more of similar kinds of models, and they will be applied to just about every problem you can imagine under the sun. This is going to unlock incredible new waves of content, which is synthesized and mediated by machines, kind of a holodeck, if you will, but at least in, in a virtual sense of being able to design a, a scene or a sequence of scenes in even 3D spaces, which seem very realistic. 
which feel more like having having a a theater with characters in it. We're going to see non-player characters in games that we can converse with, not just on pre-recorded lines, but dynamically generated virtual lines. And this is going to create very rich new narrative kinds of content. But of course, one of the biggest problems that we're starting to see emerge and it will become a big deal in the years ahead is the risk of supernormal stimuli. A supernormal stimulus is something which is beyond natural, but it's something that we find irresistible. For example, they had a, a species of beetle out in the Australian outback, which was mysteriously dying off, and they didn't know why that was happening. And they found that it was due to pollution, but not chemicals, but rather these little stubby beer bottles that people would drink and they'd throw in the bush. And to the beetle, this shiny brown surface was basically the ultimate sexy beetle butt. And so they were humping these bottles, preferentially to actual beetles. And that was having a catastrophic effect on the population of that species. We have a similar problem today where we have so much content, it's, it's so accessible. And yet now we're moving into a world where machines can generate this content endlessly. We are about to become so enamored, so bewitched by AI, by our relationships with AI, romantic or platonic, which are in many ways going to be more fulfilling and more exciting than real human relationships, that this sort of problem of, of hikikomori, people kind of retreating into their, into their rooms, is going to become much, much more problematic. You know? And that's your work. So you're working on those principles in IEEE. You're a front runner and I admire you for that. How do we get from principles and rules and good thinking, what you should and shouldn't do into action? Well, we can boil it down into different elements which either drive or inhibit the emergence of equality. Equality in the sense of transparency, for example. So Okay. Publishing how a system functions in a way that people can easily understand, like maybe like a comic book even, that will tend to improve transparency in a system. Whereas concerns about intellectual property, that will tend to inhibit the quality of transparency. And all of these things connect in a kind of a mesh. And when you laboriously map them out, you can understand the full picture and create rules and, you know, evidence which would satisfy that all of those respective elements are being taken care of. And from that, we can then create these standards and certifications. And by rules, you mean maybe also laws about transparency? So we, do we need more laws about being transparent on these kind of things? Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think that, as I said, there's this sort of Sputnik moment occurring, which is only going to grow all the more. And there will be a moral panic about AI. And typically, regulators have a big heavy hammer that they're not very accurate with whenever they are faced with a moral panic and an outcry from the public. So the more that the industry can adopt these kinds of uh, rules at an early stage, they can de-risk themselves and hopefully avoid a regulatory hammer, which is uh, unfortunate, which maybe leaves loopholes or 
targets the wrong populations, etc. Well, that's a hopeful end of our talk. But I do have one last question because I'm intrigued by your remark that having a crush on AI will be the ultimate, you know, in 10 years you see me and I have fallen in love with a, an AI system. How did that happen? It could happen to any one of us. And it, it seems ridiculous now, but technology has a way of changing our values in ways that we don't understand at the time. Hmm. I think, for example, of you know hormonal birth control um, and, and the ramifications that that has had on our, our society, right? On women entering the workforce, on feminism, on all of it because of, of that technology. Similarly, many of us couldn't imagine putting our real name on Facebook or mm. jumping into a stranger's car through an Uber app. And now, of course, this is something that most of us are pretty comfortable with. So I think that we're, we're already starting to see systems such as Replica offering a kind of a relationship, which is potentially like a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, this is the world today. In 10 years or less, as things get more sophisticated, we're going to become incredibly enticed by these systems. And I'm not embarrassed by it. So it's socially accepted? It will be. It will, it will be. be. The, the same way that, you know, the LGBT kind of culture has, has become more ingrained in general society. We're starting to see the, the acceptance of uh, polyamory and, and elements uh, such as that. So I think similar, we're going to see a lot of people who say, you know, I'm, I'm robosexual. I am. Um, I love my AI and I'm not ashamed of it. But um, whether that's ultimately to the benefit of, of humanity and human society is, is another question. And I, I fear it may not be. Having a crush on AI. <laughs> so what do you make of these fears and love relationships between men and artificial intelligence, Tia? Yes, yeah, so it really reminds me of uh, the movie Her, yeah. where <laughs> yeah, yeah, the main uh, protagonist falls in love with their AI virtual assistant. And uh, in the end, she or they, they leave him and he's left yeah. all alone. And yeah, but jokes aside. Wow. I don't think it's a joke. I've been, uh, I've been meeting a lot of security people lately and they talk mm. about people falling in love with a non-existing person or a person that exists, but you never meet them, but they want your money. So I, I don't think it's oh, as weird right. as we think it is. It, it's, it's uh, happening every day. So the moral panic idea. What do you think that will happen? Are you thinking about panic possibility that the general public will panic about these kind of things? Yeah. In the future, if it gets out of hand, and again, tying back to what we already discussed in the beginning, if we don't make sure that AI is adopted in a human-centered, ethical way, this moral panic is something that's definitely going to happen. Because you can see it even in current day, people are really fed up with their data being used by AI. For example, whenever you go on Instagram, you get an ad recommendation. That's a machine learning model. These are big things that actually uh, are shaping the way we act on online and the way we interact with technology. So, so a lot of emotion. I think yes. being fed up is not exactly the same as panic, but no, uh, no, we no. have e emotional <laughs> response. And as you said, we should mitigate uh, these kind of risks by uh, using, looking at ethics, of course. 
Yes, because I feel that uh, this, again, hinders the adoption of AI, even if we have people being fed up and not wanting to share their data or acting in a certain way, or maybe because they don't understand what their data is being used for. AI ethics can really help us with this, as you said, Menno, and to be really concrete, there's uh, different guidelines by the European Union and, of course, uh, worldwide that are uh, protecting users from unfair use of their data, GDPR, for example, that's the one that we all know about. But there's also a a guideline coming out, or actually it came out a couple of years ago, but this year it's going to be revisited again. It's about assessing the riskiness of our AI models in different industries, for example. And based on that riskiness, a specific way of auditing and different technical um, packages are going to be used to ensure transparency and to inform the users of how their data is being used, how they should use an AI model and exactly what's happening under the hood. Yeah. So this is really something that's going to help preempt this. So at this moment, I hear the voice of Nell saying to me, Menno, this is exactly the thing that I'm doing now with IEEE. And by the way, Thijs Pepping, my colleague or our colleague, has joined that initiative. So I think we will see from IEEE and many others uh, a lot of tools and guidelines to give answers to the direction that we want to take with AI. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. So to bring things to a close, let's go back to David to hear some final thoughts on the fears around AI and some of the other ways in which we might mitigate against it. I would say, um, just for the the sake of the discussion, that ChatGPT is a turning point for another reason, which is uh, the massive use of it. So what I'm now seeing is the adoption curve like going crazy. My father is 87 years old and he's playing with ChatGPT. He's doing a course on uh, artificial intelligence and it's about hope and fear. Because people, when we talk about this topic and you talk about, you know, winter, summer, uh, but a lot of people are scared of the whole thing. And it reminded me of um, a piece of research that we did. It was called the Frankenstein Factor, where we we got back to a publication done by Sigmund Freud in 1919. It was called uh, Das Unheimliche uh, auf Deutsch. The Uncanny. Yes, the Uncanny. Yeah. And he described our relationship with, let's call it, humanoid things. So uh, anthropomorphic stuff like mechanical dolls. And so we didn't try to answer the question, should we be worried about it? But more the question, why? Why are we fearing it? So why do you think, why Why would people fear AI? I think there are lots of reasons to fear AI. I mean, we have a long cultural, well, we have a short cultural history of using AI as a, as a goblin terminator, right? The robots yeah. will be, if they become conscious, they won't need us and will kill us. That's not my main worry, I have to tell you. Uh-huh. So uh, the chat GPT stuff, I'm going to call chat AI because it's already spreading beyond that particular yeah. instance. I like that. Is a user interface to a insanely, insanely powerful machine learning system, machine learning model. How could you not want to try it out? And once you try it out, how could you not want to test its limits? Because it it is designed, it is designed to sound, not only sound like a human, but to engage with humans in ways that humans care about. 
because it is based upon language. And language is a representation. It's not even a representation. It's the means by which we engage with one another about the things that we care about. And if you can build a model on that, you're not just building it on phonemes or word roots or anything like that. You're building it upon what we humans have engaged with one another about, which is a direct representation or sign of what we care about, what matters to us. And this this system and other large language models as well do that. Uh-huh. So let me be really quick about how this thing is built, yeah. as I understand it. You take all of these words, you dissolve the sources, you know, which I'm going to come back to in a second because it's one of the things we need to fear. You dissolve the, the sources, you just take these words in their literal proximity to other words, and you develop this model that has uh, billions of words and trillion something like a trillion relationships among them. And so this model brings words in. It it doesn't actually keep the words. It doesn't have uh, a word for home in it. What it has is it replaces that word wherever it sees it with a meaningless token, some symbolic thing, because it doesn't want it to have anything to do with meanings. It it could be pieces of confetti. It doesn't matter. could be health records. Uh It's just numbers. But it turns out that with this massive amount of of examples and the massive computing, it will figure out what sorts of words or tokens, these, you know, not even words, what sorts of words humans will use next to other words in order to satisfy the prompt that the human typed in. That's all that it does. It doesn't have, it has no meanings. It literally, literally, literally knows absolutely nothing except the the statistical correlation of words. And one of the sobering things is that we think that we're very intelligent and original um, species and very creative. Well, it turns out there's enough of this that mm, it's a little sobering to see that, no, a machine can do it if you give it enough examples. (laughs) So, So that's a little dispiriting. Yeah. Well, that's sobering. I like that because it's you know we're looking in the in the mirror of our own uh, almost say stupidity. For me, the fundamental thing is we speak language because we care about things. We care about ourselves, but we also care about others. We're connected to others. Machine learning doesn't care about anything. In case of language, it's just this giant array of connected words, and it doesn't care. It reflects what humans are interested in, but it has no actual. And for me, that is, it can be dangerous to rely for things that we care about on a system that has no system of caring. I think it's incredibly positive and this, I think it is game changing or Copernican or revolutionary what this language breakthrough has done. At this point, it is just an extraordinarily talented bowl of soup. It's sobering to think that it can do so much. And it's tempting to think that we do it the same way. But that's, I think, one of the profound questions that I don't have an answer to. But I don't have any thoughts about the extent to which we work the way that it does. I think you summarized it pretty well. It all, all boils down to a bowl of soup. That's it. <laughs> so thank you so much, David. Thank you for your interesting perspectives. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nell, 
David and of course Tia for helping me open up this fascinating topic. Thank you, Menno. If you enjoyed this episode and want to let us know, please do get in touch on LinkedIn, Twitter or Instagram. You can find us at Sojeti. And don't forget to subscribe and review Playing With Reality on your favorite podcast app as it really helps others find our show. In two weeks, we'll be focusing on how generative models of AI are changing the game in the space of healthcare and beyond. Do join us again next time on Playing With Reality. Reality.